If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the Word of the Lord endures forever. Of course, the central objection that a confessional Lutheran has to Roman Catholic theology and practice centers around the doctrine of justification. That has been the main difference between the two churches for 500 plus years. But there are other objections that flow out of the differences over how a sinner is justified before a righteous God. Welcome back to Issues Etc. Dr. Jordan Cooper joins us to respond to the question why he is not a Roman Catholic. He's executive director of Just and Sinner, president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary, author of several books, including his latest, in defense of the true, the good, and the beautiful, and the creator and host of the YouTube video titled Five Reasons I Am Not Roman Catholic. Dr. Cooper, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Todd. Before we get into our subject proper, this is related really to one of your first reasons for not being Roman Catholic. Your thoughts on the recent declaration, Fiducia Supplicans, that was Pope Francis's response to called uh, dubia, some questions raised by several cardinals regarding the prospect of blessing what they call irregular relationships, including same-sex unions and relationships. Yeah, sure. So I think this is a great example, I think, of one of the reasons why, personally, I'm not compelled by many of the arguments for Roman Catholicism today. I think you do see, especially a lot of young men that I interact with being drawn toward Roman Catholicism because of the moral confusion of our world today. And there is a desire to have some kind of you know, authority to correct those issues or to give the world guidance. And for Rome, the Pope is really supposed to do that. And in a lot of ways, that's, that's really the appeal of Rome. And with Pope Francis's leadership, that has become, I think, far more difficult argument to make consistently. And this particular event that everybody's talking about right now regarding the the blessing of those who are in same-sex relationships, it is not what some news outlets reported it to be in that there, you know, and this is how headlines are anyway, they like to sensationalize things. So there are some headlines that basically gave the impression that Pope Francis was saying that same-sex relationships were somehow okay or, or morally permissible. Well, that's not what Francis was saying, it certainly obscures things. And so the argument from Francis essentially is that blessings can be given to those who are in homosexual relationships by priests. However, those blessings are not a blessing on the union itself, as if that union is identical to sacramental marriage, but the union is itself disordered. But there are also some good and positive things that are in those kinds of relationships, even though that relationship itself is somehow sinful. At the very least, it's extremely confusing, and the Pope is certainly not offering any kind of clarity. He's not offering clarity to the church in a time when the church desperately needs clarity, the world desperately needs clarity. So it has 
in light of the entire political situation going on with Rome right now, where there are German bishops that are supporting same-sex relationships, and there are those who are in very influential positions, like uh, someone like Father James Martin, well-known LGBTQ plus whatever advocate within the Roman church who shares icons of Jesus and the Theotokos with the pride flag. There are these people in the Roman church that are very clearly pushing a progressive social agenda. And rather than making clear statements of condemnation, we have Francis meeting with people like Father Martin and then just offering these very convoluted statements. And so I think it is really leading toward a crisis that's been brewing for a significant time period in Rome. And, and I guess we'll see what comes in the future. I wouldn't be surprised if, if they do experience some kind of a divide or split, but that remains to be seen. Just briefly, my takeaway from this as a result of reading about it and then several conversations with people like yourself is that Pope Francis is sympathetic toward the position of those German bishops who want to effectively change the definition of marriage in the Roman Catholic Church. But he is taking a baby step at this point by way of, and let, kind of letting the ambiguity do all the work for him. I think that's exactly what he's doing. Yes, I think that's exactly right. So, you know, he's certainly not outright denying what has been historic church teaching on these things explicitly, but he's certainly pushing the boundaries forward. And you have to understand this also in light of the many statements that Francis has made, including since then, in terms of the reaction to what had been stated, which was, you know, he's constantly critiqued those who are stuck in the past or are too rigid or are too strict or who are not open to change. And he does use the inclusion type of language some. So it certainly appears that he is really trying to push in that direction. And how far in that direction things will actually go remains to be seen. But it seems to me undeniable that that's where he's pushing. That's where Francis is trying to go. That leads us to your first reason for not being Roman Catholic, and that is the papacy. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, sure. So really the, the truth claims of Roman Catholicism really depend on the papacy more than anything else. In fact, it almost entirely depends on the papacy, right? The question of should you be Roman Catholic or not really is the question of did Jesus appoint Peter and then his successors to be the head of the church for all time and not just the head of the church as in a you know first among equals but in the sense that he is the vicar of Christ he is the chosen representative of Jesus on earth and that he is able to make statements that are infallible when he speaks with the authority of that office. I mean, that's the fullness of the Roman claim. So if you don't buy all of that, you essentially can't be Roman Catholic. So everything really stands or falls with that. So why not view the papacy as this divinely appointed office in this way? Well, I think there are a number of reasons, and we could spend a long time on this, but the first of those is just the practical one that's kind of asking the question, throughout history, has the Pope actually done this? Is it the case that statements that would, say, fall under the descriptions or, or, or categories that would mark, say, an infallible statement, are those things that are all actually self-consistent? And there, I think you have a major issue. So one issue that I've pointed out just to demonstrate that inconsistency, and there are many you could point out, but this one comes to mind in particular because it was mentioned in um, the famous Exurgate Domine, which is the you know, papal bull that excommunicated Martin Luther. 
where there are statements against the reformers where the Pope affirms the justness of executing heretics. And just in terms of historical context, it's very undeniable, very clear that that's what the Pope is saying. By the standards that are laid out in terms of what marks an infallible statement in Vatican I, I think there's no question that that particular papal bull falls under that. So what you have is supposedly infallible statements saying that it is wrong to say that heretics should not be executed is essentially what Bull says. And then you move from there to now someone who is in that office, Pope Francis, arguing very adamantly opposed to the death penalty for, for any reason whatsoever. So there's just one example, but there are many of these throughout history. So what I would say, just in terms of the actual consistency between popes, I don't think you see it historically. The historical evidence is that there was some kind of infallible office that was tied to the Bishop of Rome is simply not there in the very early church. It doesn't even seem that we have a Bishop of Rome at one time where we start having bishops having a very prominent position in other churches. So in the second century, for example, Ignatius of Antioch, who's very adamant about the authority of bishops, when writing to the Church of Rome, doesn't even mention that they have a bishop. And that would be a, you know, it's an argument from silence, but at this point, what else are you going to have when you're dealing with a later dogma, right? But it's very clear that if Rome was really the, the head of the church and all of these the Christians in the second century understood this, and they understood that the head of the church was in Rome. It would be very weird not to have mention of the Bishop of Rome, especially as the infallible head of the church. So you don't find that kind of language uh, clearly in the early church at all. And you do have a proposed line of bishops in Rome, but it's really historically dubious to the point that, I mean, there are many historians who are Roman Catholics who have acknowledged that the historical precedent for such claims are, are simply not there. And then you, of course, just simply have the lack of biblical evidence. There's simply nothing in scripture that identifies Peter as the infallible head of the church that would then also say that those who follow him in the office of the Bishop of Rome would somehow be the infallible heads of the church. Is that really a deal breaker right there? I mean, you have a list of five things, ending with theologically the most important thing that we'll get to. But even if they corrected some of their more egregious errors, does the papacy still stand in the way there, just its claims? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the primary issue. It really is. I mean, everything, like I said, everything really stands or falls on that issue. So if the Roman church is wrong on the papacy, then the Roman church is wrong. I mean, that's <laughs> that's kind of the, the short of it. So yes, if there were ever going to be, say, some future proposed union between us and Rome, the dogmas regarding the papacy would have to be kind of the first to go. And at that point, if they were to let those dogmas go, in reality, they're giving up their Roman Catholic identity because it really centers on the, not simply the Bishop of Rome as structurally, say, the head of the church, but uh, as the infallible vicar of Christ on earth. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. We're finding out why he is not Roman Catholic. We'll talk about the cult of the saints next. Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024 
Subscribe, rate, and review issues, etc. today. Hello, this is Roy Askins with The Lutheran Witness. You've heard me talk about all the great content we publish in the print magazine of The Lutheran Witness, but I wanted to share with you that we have even more online. Visit our website, witness.lcms.org, where you'll hear even more content on worship this month in particular from Cantor Phil Magnus. We also have a series on literature right now going on and a series on church art with much more planned in the future. You can get all that for free on witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Theology for Blue Collar, White Collar, and Clerical Collar, you're listening to Issues Etc. Common and experience firsthand by sitting down in classes and actually hearing professors, coming to chapel, which is always the high point of the day, to hear the Word of God and to lift our voices in song. Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. Paul Grimm on why you should consider visiting Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Spend time talking to professors. I mean, there's not a professor here who will not be willing to, to take time, whether it's after chapel during the coffee hour or just to come into one's study and, and sit down and talk for a while, to answer questions, to you know, help them to get a sense of, A, you know, do they want to be a pastor or a deaconess? And then B, is this the right place? And well, maybe C would be the question, is now the right time for them to make that decision? If you've contemplated the vocation of pastor or deaconess, contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or send an email to admission at ctsfw.edu. What is worship? How is the divine service formed by God's Word? What is the history of Lutheran liturgical service? Find out in the January edition of the Lutheran Witness magazine. You can receive an annual digital and print subscription for less than $25. Learn more at cph.org witness or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective, the Lutheran Witness magazine. We're answering the question why Dr. Jordan Cooper is not a Roman Catholic. He's executive director of Just and Sinner. Jordan, the second reason that you're not Roman Catholic is the saints. What's the problem there? Sure. So within the Roman Catholic tradition, the saints identify a particular group of people. So we certainly talk about saints in the sense that all believers are saints. We are all, I mean, the saint is, is just a holy one. So we have plenty of language in scripture that speaks about all believers as holy. Our holiness is found in Christ. You know, 1 Corinthians one thirty, And the 
book of first Corinthians in general is a good place to go to, to demonstrate the fact that saints are all believers, especially because Paul is writing to a pretty messed up sinful church and they're still referred to as saints. But what we do have an understanding that there are those who have led exemplary lives of faith, those whose lives we should imitate. We do have, you know, in our own tradition, certain days of the church here where we honor the lives of certain great saints who have walked with God. We see precedent for that, certainly in scripture. Hebrews chapter 11 is a great example with the great hall of faith, which extols all of those who have walked in faith. But within the Roman Catholic tradition, saints are not just those who have kind of led maybe exemplary lives, but those who have lived such meritorious lives that they have surpassed purgatory, which is something that the majority in Roman theology, the majority of people are going to suffer in purgatory for a significant period of time prior to entering into paradise. And saints have basically skipped that and they have this excess merit then that is placed into the treasury of merit. And the saints then, their merit can be basically dispensed by the church to us, which is certainly a completely unbiblical notion along with the idea of purgatory as a whole. But then also there is the cult of the saints as it develops, especially within the medieval church. And there is a, a prominent idea that in order to, for example, I just, there was a clip of a Roman Catholic priest that went around on the social media spheres pretty recently, where the priest said something like, well, the best way to get close to Jesus is to get close to his mother. Um, in other words, because she has his ear more than you do. So there is this idea within the cult of the saints that we do have them as this ki this kind of mediating force between us and Christ in some way. And I know that they have all sorts of nuances to talk about that. But essentially, what I think the major problem is, it maybe is twofold. One is it simply tends to obscure Christ. And why do we need to spend so much time, you know, praying to the saints and, uh, you know, engaged in this cult of the saints when we could spend that time focused on Christ. And, and again, I'm not saying we should never, you know, focus on the, the lives of those who have, have walked before us in faith. So that's the first part of it. But then the second is that even though within Roman theology, the claim is that the saints are not actually being worshipped, the acts that are given toward the saints, such as prayer and primarily prayer and devotion in some way, are scripturally acts of worship and only directed toward God. So even though Rome is not consciously worshiping saints. Um, you know, I, I would make the case that the things that Rome is doing towards saints are worship, biblically speaking. What's the proper way to understand the saints? Yeah, I think the proper way is to understand that there, there are things that we are to imitate in others. St. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So the proper way to imitate the saints and honor the saints is to imitate their life of good works and service and and share their faith. I mean, it is right the faith of Abraham that is extolled. I mean, read that that chapter in Hebrews eleven. It's we see that continued phrase by faith. So it really largely is the faith of the saints, the the trust that the saints had in Christ, that is the thing that is most to be imitated. So the best way to honor the saints is to imitate their faith and imitate their life of service toward the neighbor. What is the sacrifice of the Mass, and why is it an objection on your part? Yeah, so the sacrifice of the Mass is a bit of a complicated issue because there are a lot of different approaches to the sacrifice of the Mass within the history of, of the Roman Church. So just currently sticking with perhaps what was going on in the 16th century, because that's that's where a lot of these 
of course, debates really, really began. And that's certainly where, where we, our division from Rome comes from. It was understood within that late medieval period that the sacrifice of Christ atoned, the original sacrifice of Christ on Calvary atoned for original sin. And beyond original sin, we have actual sins. Now, the question is, well, how are actual sins atoned for? Well, within medieval Roman theology, that's then those actual sins are divided into venial sins and mortal sins. Now, venial sins are those which do not cut you off from a state of grace, and mortal sins are those which do cut you off from a state of grace. So what happens with venial sins, though they don't cut you off from, from Christ, what they do is kind of, they add basically a debt, a debt of these temporal punishments that are to be paid. And that's what penance is for, essentially, or indulgences. You can do that to pay for the uh, temporal, what they call the temporal consequences of venial sins. Well, what about mortal sins throughout the Christian life? Well, those kinds of sins are paid for through confession, but also through the grace that is given in the Eucharist. Now, it was understood that on the altar, there is a sacrificial act where the priest offers up Christ, and the priest's offering up of Christ is done on behalf of the people. In other words, the, the primary action in the Eucharistic service is really between the priest and God. So the priest is offering up Christ to God the Father for the sins of the people. And then there is an eating, but not a drinking, because the focus isn't on the partaking in the community of the church, but the focus is on the action of the priest himself. Now, there is a reception of the host that is there, at least for those who are present at the Mass, but you also have a rise in private Masses where the people don't even have to be present because everything is done by the priest. So the way that Rome would explain this, and certainly now that there's a lot more nuance to this, and I think a lot of that's because of the Reformation than there was at the time. But now it would be said much more carefully, and not that no one said this in the Middle Ages, but that the sacrifice that the priest is offering to the Father is an unbloody sacrifice, and it is a representation of the sacrifice on Calvary. In other words, it's not like Christ is sacrificed again, but his once-for-all sacrifice is represented on the altar. Now, it can all get very convoluted and confusing. But still, the fundamental distinction remains here, that for Rome, the efficacy of what happens in the Eucharistic celebration is really dependent upon what the priest is offering to the Father, which is why it is still very common in you know, many parishes, especially more traditionalist parishes, that the laity does not receive the cup, the blood of Christ, and that there is still the practice of private masses. But scripturally, the giving of the sacrament of the altar is for the purpose of partaking in the community of the church during what we call the divine service. So when Christ gives the sacrament, he explicitly instructs the church what to do with it. <laughs> he says, take eat, take drink. And anything that the church does that is not focused on the eating of Christ's body and the drinking of his blood for the forgiveness of sins is really a misunderstanding and, and abuse of the sacrament. And it's not sticking with the clear biblical command. And so ultimately, no, no matter how Rome wants to nuance things in terms of what they mean by sacrifice, the reality is that the focus is taken away from what scripture puts the focus on, which is the eating and drinking for the forgiveness of sins, and instead moves really the sacramental act toward what the priest is doing for the congregation. So, of course, in some sense, it's true of, that there is a sacramental element in the 
in Holy Communion in that in giving us the body and blood of Christ, we are given the benefits of the sacrifice of Christ in the body and blood as we receive it in our mouths. However, Rome is not simply saying that. They're certainly going beyond that. What's the proper understanding of the Mass? Yes, the proper understanding is that the direction of the sacrament is not so much us to God, but God coming down to us. And so within the Roman Catholic approach, there is, as I said, an offering. The priest offers the Son to the Father on behalf of the people. But in a proper understanding, we see that the sacrament of the altar does include, as I said, the benefits of Christ's sacrifice, but it's God giving Christ to us. It's not the pastor doing something, offering something to the Father. And instead, it's from God to us word instead of us to God word, in other words. And that's really, I think, the the central distinction. But as the benefits of Christ are given to us, they are given to us through our mouths, through eating and drinking, and not in any other way. So they aren't given to us as we are absent, just because the priest can do something on our behalf. And so we we do continually receive the benefits of Christ's sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins through that. Now, there is a sense, of course, in which we can talk about Eucharist or Thanksgiving, which is what that word means, in that, yes, as we receive the, the body and blood of Christ, we receive the forgiveness of sins, we offer ourselves to God, as St. Paul says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, and we sing hymns of praise, and we offer thanks to God. That is all Eucharistic, and it's all, we are giving thanks to God as we receive his benefits. But what we are not doing is offering Christ to the Father to propitiate our sins. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. He's explaining why he isn't a Roman Catholic. We'll talk about the inconsistency of the Church next. If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the Word of the Lord endures forever. Lutheranism in the Public Square. You're listening to Issues Etc. As we bid farewell to the old year and welcome the new, let's embrace the promise of new beginnings. In this journey, we are reminded that each year is a gift from the Creator, filled with opportunities, hope, and blessings. Wishing you a new year where your faith is strengthened, your joy abounds, and you find God's grace in every moment. Happy New Year from Lutheran Church Extension Fund. We're talking with Dr. Jordan Cooper about why he isn't a Roman Catholic. He's executive director of Just and Sinner and Creator and host of a YouTube video titled Five Reasons I Am Not a Roman Catholic. Another reason you give, Dr. Cooper, is the inconsistency of the church. What do you mean by that? Yeah, and I guess I already addressed this a bit before, so I don't know how much more you want me to go into this, but just to kind of summarize, and, and I guess we it's because we kind of started with this, is that what I don't see is this 
consistent line of teaching that doesn't show any kind of breaks, right? So this has to do with like the appeal of Rome. You know, the appeal of Rome that a lot of people see, as I said earlier, is this idea that there is an ancient tradition that preserves its authority, that gives us a place to look for answers when the world doesn't have any answers, which, okay, that's true. But when you look at the history of, of Rome, you simply see so much inconsistency, so much contradiction over the many centuries. And often the claim that you find among Roman Catholic apologists, you know, those who have their careers in defending the Roman church, the argument is, is often going to be, well, if you look at the ancient church and you read the writings of the church fathers, they didn't agree with Protestants on this, this, and this, and therefore they're all Roman Catholic. And if you read the church fathers, you're also going to become a Roman Catholic. Now, <laughs> a couple of things have to happen to make that argument work. One of those is it works pretty well when you're dealing with your kind of typical, maybe Baptist evangelical who has no knowledge of church history and is completely disconnected from the fathers. And sure, I'm sure when they read the fathers and read what they say about the sacraments and all sorts of other things that they do sound quite <laughs> Roman Catholic to those years. But the other thing I think that's dependent upon is really looking very selectively at doctrine. And the arguments can be made for Roman Catholic doctrine decently well in the fathers for certain doctrines, but not for others. So you have whole sets, books and volumes of books that are compilations of quotes and sayings from the church fathers that Roman Catholic publishing houses put out that really tend to be quite selective. And what they put out are selections of writings that are consistent with Roman Catholic teaching, but they're not going to put out those writings that, that are not. So they're often going to claim that, well, the church has this consistent teaching throughout the centuries. And if you read the early church, they all sound Catholic. They don't sound Protestant. By the way, I am using that term Roman Catholic on purpose because I don't want to give them the term Catholic because it's not theirs. But when you read the fathers, there are points where none of the fathers agree with what Rome says. I mean, if you talk about something like withholding the cup from the laity, the idea that you can partake of the Eucharist in one kind only, there's no precedent for that anywhere. Not one statement You know, for at least the first 600 years of the church. It's really a much later medieval idea that shows up. Nobody's talking about the bodily assumption of the Virgin Mary. Nobody speaks about papal infallibility. There are plenty of doctrines that we can just as easily say have zero grounding in the fathers uh, whatsoever that develop later. So this idea of the consistent church is simply not there, I think, if you look honestly. And I say this often, that a cursory look at the fathers often makes people Roman Catholic. But an in-depth look at the fathers and an in-depth study of the fathers often turns you away from Rome because at, at a kind of cursory glance, you see that there are areas of consistency and continuity, perhaps. But the more you dive into the variety of writings of the fathers and the uniqueness of the different fathers and what they all have to say, and the more you delve into Roman Catholic dogma, it becomes quite obvious that they're not always consistent. and. This is why John Henry Newman, known as Cardinal Newman, in the 19th century developed something called the development hypothesis. Because with the rise of patristic studies, which was gaining a lot of traction in the Anglican community, especially in the 19th century, people were starting to read and write a lot about the church fathers, uh, a lot of great publications that came out in that era from Anglicans of, of that era. Uh, though, of course, Lutherans were, were doing some of the same work, you know, 100 years earlier. But it became obvious that simply the later developed Roman theology just wasn't there. 
in the early church. So there was this hypothesis that was created, which basically said, well, what you have in the early church is the kind of beginnings of, of doctrines, and those doctrines actually can take centuries to develop. So that we have something like, say, papal infallibility, which was the issue that was being discussed at the time, because that was only declared dogma in 1870 of Vatican I. Something like that, which clearly doesn't have any precedent in the Fathers. Rome had a way to say, we're still being consistent because this is a natural outgrowth or development of the theology that existed earlier. Now, what this really does is it creates a form of argumentation for Roman Catholic defenders where their system becomes completely unfalsifiable. Because for the Roman Catholic apologists, if there is a point in the fathers that agrees with Rome, they're going to use that and beat you over the head with it to say, look, the fathers agree with us. This is the church of Rome. This is not your Protestant church, whatever that church might be. And it's usually not Lutherans. They're usually dealing with the Baptist types because that's probably easier for them. And they say, this is proof that Rome is the one true church. And then if you point to statements where the fathers say something that's the opposite of what Rome says, then they're going to just say, well, that's the, the development hypothesis. You have to understand from our perspective that dogma develops. So it, it really gives you an easy out. I don't think it's intellectually honest or fair. And I don't think it's what something like the Council of Trent says, where you look at the, so the Catechism of Trent, which says uses the phrase, the unanimous consensus of the fathers regarding their theology at least three different times. So it gives you an out to basically say, okay, well, if the fathers agree with us, it's proof that we're right. And if the fathers don't agree with us, it's proof of Newman's development hypothesis, which is also proof that we're right. <laughs> so like, there's kind of no winning. But I just find that, that kind of argument uh, really intellectually dishonest and not compelling at all. Finally, you list justification as the major obstacle here. Yeah. And of course, justification is going to be the major theological point. And this is you know, from our perspective, the doctrine of justification, you know, I use, and I use this term about the papacy for Rome, that, that really the papacy is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. And, and for us, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. This understanding that our righteousness, it rests solely, our righteousness before God rests solely in Christ and his person and his work. It is complete and pure and perfect. There's nothing that we can add to it. There's nothing that we can take away from it. It is given to us completely, freely through faith. And all those who have faith have the perfect, complete righteousness of Christ and are therefore declared righteous before God the Father because of Christ and what he's done. In the Roman Catholic tradition, justification is, is not that. Justification is something that is received first by baptism in that and we would certainly tie it to baptism as well, but, but Rome has a different way of viewing that. So for Rome, the sacrament of baptism puts you into a state of grace where you have a kind of justification. However, that is going to be lost when you commit mortal sin. And if you commit mortal sin, you lose at that state of grace and you have to come back into a state of grace through the Roman sacramental system. And justification for them is something that they certainly wouldn't say it's not by faith. I mean, the Council of Trent is very clear about, about it being by faith in some sense. But it is something, justification is an internal righteousness. It is something that is done inside of us and not outside of us, extra notes that is granted to us. And in the Roman system, we can increase the grace of justification. We can merit further justification through our own works. 
And so justification in the Roman system ultimately is through faith and human merit. And the phrase that was often, it still is often used, but was often used in those 17th century debates is that the faith that justifies is faith that is formed by love. And well, that may sound very similar to our view because we would certainly say that the faith that justifies always is accompanied by love. But essentially they would say that the love or charity that we have, in other words, the good works that we have are that which perfects faith. In other words, so that the faith that saves and justifies is the faith that is formed by love. And this is more than, because I know when I when you kind of parse some of this out, especially when you start talking about some things like the joint declaration and the doctrine of justification, there are a lot of points of similarity. But when you start to look at the implications, I think, of Rome's doctrine is where you really start to see the differences much more clearly. Because if you start to think about the reality of purgatory and how that relates to justification, when you start to speak about this distinction between the guilt of sin that is an eternal guilt, which is, take, which is taken care of by Christ, and this temporal guilt, which you have to take care of yourself, you really have a distortion of justification there. So that within the Roman system, not only do you have this, again, removal from the state of grace because of sin, but you also have these increased kind of punishments. And it's this uh, second kind of punishment for sin that really creates this system of merit where, well, now you not only have to be forgiven directly by God, say through a confession, but you also now have to work off this temporal stuff that you racked up and you do that through penance and you do that through paying indulgences. And, and so to some degree for Rome, you really do pay for the forgiveness of sins. You really do good works or what they call good works, penance for the forgiveness of sins. Now they push against that and say, that's not true because what they're talking about is not forgiveness in the eternal sense, but in some other sense. Uh, but, but ultimately, how does that actually play itself out in the life of the layperson, which really is, hey, every time I sin, I'm racking up more debt and I have to take care of that, and I have to take care of that by my works. And so it's a theology that doesn't ultimately flow out of rest in Christ and assurance of my state in Christ because of what he's done with good works then flowing out of the joy and delight of knowing that I am in Christ and that I am forgiven. But it is ultimately a system that does largely burden you underneath your own merit. Dr. Jordan Cooper is executive director of Just and Sinner, president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary. He's author of several books, including his latest, In Defense of the True, the Good, and the Beautiful. He's creator and host of a YouTube video titled Five Reasons I Am Not Roman Catholic. Be sure to watch it and to subscribe to Dr. Cooper's YouTube channel. We'll post a link to it at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Dr. Cooper, thank you. Thank you. Friday on Issues Etc., we'll continue our series Kids Have Questions with Pastor Jonathan Connor. It's part two of Forgiveness and Unforgiveness with Dr. Ted Kober, and Chris Rosebro will join us for this week in Pop Christianity. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc., Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 
62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.